morning, everyone. You might be a mom preaching if you walk up with a half-chewed mandarin orange in your hand. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Still sticky. <laughs> Uh, so good morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Lindsay Eidler. Um, I'm not usually the one and he's wonderful and you should come back another time to hear him. And I'm thankful that he's a good sharer and that he let me come up here today. So disclaimer, my son was up a lot last night. Um, it was one of those days where I was trying to put both my contacts in one eye. That's how tired I was. So I'm confident God's going to use me anyway, uh, but I would love your grace. Uh, for when I stumble a little bit. So before we get started, I'd like to pray. Holy Spirit, come. I thank you that you're already here, God. You're already moving. Thank you that you desire to be close to us. I pray that you would help me get out of the way so that you can speak through me, God, to your church. Would you encourage us? Would you draw us closer to you in the name of Jesus? Amen. Okay, so this summer we've been working through a series on Hebrews, and it's been called Greater. And we've been looking at how Jesus is essentially just the better version of anything we can find in life. Um, And the writer, we don't know who it is, um, but he's writing specifically to a group of persecuted Jewish Christians who are trying to decide okay, life's getting kind of hard. Is Jesus actually worth everything that I'm going to go through? Or should I just go back to Judaism where it was a little bit more comfortable, where I'm not going to get um, as much of a hard time from the people around me? And what really strikes me about the author is he's re- he's very like intelligent in the way that he makes his arguments. And I found myself almost thinking like, oh, what a great theology book that I'm reading. But what he's actually trying to do is make like the most passionate, well thought out argument that he can to his brothers and sisters in Christ about why they need to remain faithful to Jesus no matter how hard it gets. Um, So we've looked at that in a number of different ways, and today we're going to look at the greater kingdom. And the writer's kind of been building up to this moment as we get to the end of the book. So we're going to be on page 845 in the Bibles in front of you if you want to use those. There's also going to be scripture behind me. Um, We're going to be in Hebrews 12. It's 18 to 25. So you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape and they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So there's a lot going on there. Um, but the writer starts with these two mountains. And the first mountain actually isn't mentioned by name, but if you look at the details and the clues that the writer gives us, you can figure out that he's referencing Mount Sinai from the Old Testament. And this mountain had a very significant, it was a very significant moment in Jewish history. This is after God has freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and he has brought them through the Red Sea and he's crushed the people that are chasing them and he leads them to this mountain. And God's presence comes down on this mountain in a way that's completely undeniable. Like, it's loud, it's stormy, the mountain is like physically shaking, and the people are all standing there taking it in. It's very overwhelming. Um, but the reason God is there is because he wants to be close to his people, and he's there. Ooh. Am I good? Okay, sorry. Um, so he's there to give his people commandments and rules that are going to show them what life with him looks like. He wants to be with his people, and he wants to give them these laws to show them this is what holiness looks like. This is what life with me looks like. Um, and if you want to learn more about that, that starts in Exodus 19 and kind of goes forward. Um, So we see God's desire to be in a relationship with his people. He's doing it through this covenant on the mountain. Uh, But we still see a division, right? Like, this is not the mountain of joy. There's something scary happening here. And what's happening is God's coming to the mountain, but certain requirements need to be met for the people to actually meet God on the mountain. If you notice when um, when they get close, they're getting scared. So in uh, verses 19 and 20, it says, Such a voice was speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. And that emphasis is mine. So the people are getting close to God, but they don't want to be close to him. And that is because of God's holiness. As the Israelites find themselves close to a holy God, they feel more and more that they aren't worthy to be there. God is perfect, but we're not. So God has this desire to be close. He wants to bring his people life, but they feel that God's presence and their sinfulness in his presence demands death. And in fact, if you look at the laws of Moses, time and time again, if you reject the law, the punishment for that is death. So the law given at Mount Sinai shows us holiness, but doesn't show us a way to get there. Right, we know like this is what I should be looking like, but I don't know how I'm supposed to like get over here. So we find life at the mountain, but death as well. And this is a very important moment in history at Mount Sinai is sealed in a sacrifice. Um, a lot of the commentators called it a conditional covenant sealed in sacrifice, and conditional just meaning that there are requirements that need to be met on the sides of the Israelites in order for the covenant to stand. 
and they see at the end they sacrificed an animal to make it like an official covenant. And as you can see, the the writer Hebrews is really stressing the terror that they experienced at this mountain. Yes, it was good that God was close, but you know it was scary when Moses is like the one dude who gets to see God all the time and he's scared. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, But then the author reminds us that there's another mountain, right, that we don't have to come to the first one. He says in verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So Mount Zion is mentioned a few times in the Old Testament um, in reference to a few things. Um, At first it's kind of associated with the city of David. Then it starts being associated with um, the temple mount. And then it ends up being associated with Jerusalem, which obviously was very significant to the Jews. Um, But the writer in Hebrews is kind of using it as a symbol for... Uh, the heavenly eternal city that we're going to get to be a part of as Christians. And John does a great job explaining how beautiful the city is in Revelation. So we're going to be in Revelation 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And later on in the chapter, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. So here we get to see not a mountain of fear, but a mountain of joy. There's no division. There's direct access to God. And the writer goes on to explain how beautiful it is in Hebrews by saying the angels are there, right? Thousands and thousands of angels in right relationship to Jesus, right? Not superior to them, uh, superior to him, but worshiping him. We see the church of the firstborn, um, which is kind of a reference back to Hebrews 11, when you see Abraham and um, Moses, Rahab, Joseph, examples of the faith who believed in God, even though some of them didn't get to see the promise come to fruition. We also see God as judge, which I think is really interesting, that we come to a mountain where we're not scared and God is still judge, that it's something to be celebrated because he's setting things right and instead of fearing God's voice and his presence we get to dwell with him and experience his joy Um, remember in Revelation it says there's this loud voice from the throne declaring that God is going to be with us he's going to dwell with us and we get to dwell with him so the writer of Hebrews wants the Jewish Christians who want to return to Judaism to identify with this mountain not the first one. Uh, there is a commentator, his name's um, R. Albert Moeller Jr. And he, uh, he said, uh, we no longer identify with the place that God's law was given, but with the place that God's law was fulfilled. That's what we're called to if we have Jesus. So the writer is calling them forward to the mountain of joy. The writer knows that the people he's speaking to 
are living in fear, right? They have fear as their master and they want to leave Jesus because of that. And the writer knows that if you have Jesus, you don't have fear. And he's calling them forward out of that mountain of fear into the mountain of joy. He wants them to experience life in joy, not in fear. So why do we come to this mountain? Why do we get to come to Mount Zion instead of Mount Sinai? Is God any less holy? Are we any better? Has God sacrificed his holiness to be with us? No. But sacrifice is required. Verse 24, it says, We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is my favorite part. Um, at At the first mountain, we have the conditional covenant sealed with sacrifice. So the, we still have to meet requirements. Death is required. With Jesus at Mount Zion, we get the unconditional covenant sealed with sacrifice. So this covenant is unconditional. We don't have to do anything because the one condition that needed to be met has been met, and that's sacrifice, and that is through Jesus. So why does the author mention Abel, right, when he's talking about Jesus? That seems kind of random. Um, He's specifically talking about the blood of Ebal regarding Jesus mediating the covenant for us. And um, if you're unfamiliar with the story, Adam and Eve, they have kids. Um, The first son is Cain. He becomes a farmer. And then they have Ebal, who's a shepherd. And Cain and Ebal bring their offerings to God. And Cain is pleased with Ebal's offering, but he's not pleased with Cain. Um, Pleased with Ebal's. Not pleased with Cain's, sorry. Um, And rather than Cain talking to God about it or trying to make it right, he goes off and he kills his brother. And after this happens, um, in Genesis 4, God speaks to Cain and he says, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, and now you are under a curse. What does this have to do with us? When Cain sins and he takes his brother's life, Abel's blood cries out against him. He cries out against the sin inside of Cain that's just been stirring up in there. And in the same way, when we sin, that ugliness that's inside of us, Abel's blood cries out against us too. Before Cain kills Abel, God actually comes and he warns him. He says, sin is crouching at your door. When Abel's blood cries out condemnation on us, when we say yes to Jesus, his blood cries out forgiveness. And that is the thing that the writer wants these Christians and us to hold on to, that we could have condemnation or we can have forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus' blood speaks a better word, we can come before the holy God. He doesn't sacrifice his holiness. He sacrifices his son. I'm just really struck by the beauty of that, that we get to have both, right? That we get to have the holy God and and we get to be in intimate relationship with him because of what Jesus did for us.
So this is it. This is the moment that the writer has been working up to for 12 chapters. Jesus is greater than anything we find before him. He is the greater word, the greater brother, the greater rest giver, the greater counselor, the greater advocate, the greater covenant, the greater sacrifice, the greater revelation, the greater foundation, the greater runner. In Christ, we have everything and nothing is greater. If you notice in this passage, there's two mountains. And that's why we find a stern warning afterwards. In verse 25, it says, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? When I first read this, I was a little bit uncomfortable, to be honest. But I think we find the strong warning because... The writer knows what these Christians are saying no to. He understands that there are two mountains, right? There's not like Jesus and then a bunch of okay, like still okay choices and then like the really bad mountain. It's there's Jesus and then there's not Jesus. So we have the opportunity to stand with Jesus in his righteousness because of his sacrifice or you can go back, right, to Judaism or anything else outside of Jesus, and try to stand in your own merit and experience the terror of being before a holy God as a sinful person. That's kind of scary. I'm convicted by that. Like, I, I want Jesus to be in court with me when I come before the judge, right? God is judge. I want to come before God is judge and not be scared. I want to be with Jesus. And the, the great thing is, is Jesus isn't just, like, stamping us so we can get into heaven. He's bringing a greater kingdom. Um, and if we say yes to Jesus, we get to see his kingdom and be a part of it. Um, and it is the greater kingdom. When uh, when the writer in Hebrews speaks about this, actually quoting Haggai, um, chapter 2, He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Okay, so we talk here surprise um what do you guys see going on in this passage i know it's a different one but are you guys struck by anything is it all really bad what do you think do you want me to read it again okay this is what the lord almighty says in a little while i want once more shake the heavens and the earth the sea and the dry land i will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come and I will fill this house with glory. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord. So what is God up to? Oh, yeah. I have not done an intensive study on Haggai, but <laughs> I will give you my best answer, which is my, my impression is that we all desire what comes with God's kingdom, 
which is the absence of sin, right? We want peace. We want right relationship with each other. We want wholeness. So that is my Lindsay answer. Um, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, we get the peace, right, when all of that is gone. So when you think about, when I think about the word shaking, that sounds bad, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I feel like it's important to see that the shaking sounds scary, but what we get from it isn't, right? So I, I don't know, I was just kind of struck by that. So we have a holy God who's dealt with our sin through Jesus, but he also wants to desire to deal with all the sin in the world, right? Because Jesus already come. He's already died. He's done that work. But obviously, the world isn't fixed yet, right? People are still dying. People are sick. Bad things are still happening. So God has a desire to complete what he started with Jesus. He's a, a consuming fire who wants to rid the earth of, the sin, of sin completely. And when I think of God as a consuming fire, I just think about him being the God who made everything and he wants everything for him like because he knows that's how we are best with him and he's jealous in the sense that he doesn't want us to treat anybody else the way that we should be treating him so we get to experience the already but not yet kingdom of God and I think we've talked about that before here but just this idea that the kingdom of God broke in to our lives when Jesus was born and did his work on the cross and rose again, right? A little piece of heaven broke into earth, um, but it's not done yet, right? Because there's still sin. And when you think about the kingdom of God, you can just think of it simply as where God gets his way. Um, so if you're in the kingdom of God and, this, and God is getting what he wants in that situation, that's his kingdom, um, it also can look like a world that reflects his will and his character. So if we know that God loves people, if we know that God stands up for the brokenhearted, that he's close to the weak, that he is good and kind and merciful and loving and holy, his kingdom reflects those things. So God is shaking up all the things that are part of his kingdom because he wants his kingdom to come and he wants to get rid of the things that aren't lasting. Um, when I was preparing to speak today, I was talking to a friend and um, she kind of wisely said, as we were talking about it, like, if I, if I took out all the shakable things in my life, what would I have left? And I kind of like sat there for a minute because it was really convicting. Um, and then it made me wonder, we kind of wondered together, like, well, why do we still hold on to those things, right? If we know that they're not a part of what God has for us, like, why do we hold on to them? Um, so what do you guys think? Why do we hold on to the shakable things in our lives? I know that's a scary question, so if you want, I'll start. Um, I think for me, honestly, it's like I just want to do my own thing. I think a lot of days I wake up and I have a million things to do and I take care of the kids and I just get distracted by everyday life and I want to do, like, the life's revolving around me and I'm not being intentional and thinking about, like, what is God up to. 
Yeah, that makes sense. We, we know what the thing we're holding on to looks like, even if it's not great. There's fear in the letting go and wondering what's going to come instead. Yeah, we need we need Jesus's help. Right, not just that one time when we prayed the you know prayed the prayer, Jesus, I surrender to you. We need we need Jesus' help in every moment, right? Because we still need Him to help us. Yeah, yeah. You have to be. You end up looking weird, right? Like if you feel convicted about a certain thing in your life, sometimes you end up looking weird. You say, you know what, that's not good for me. I'm going to do this instead. And you, everyone else around you is like, wait, what? Like, <laughs> So, yeah, that's that's good. Um, yeah, I'm just going to get down. Come up, Marie. You're good. You got it. <laughs> um, I was go with it. Sorry. Um, when I was thinking about it more, I realized that a lot of the things that I struggle with aren't bad things, right? Like a big one for me is like being a mom and being distracted by that and putting my identity in that instead of God. But I don't think it's bad that I'm a mom. I don't think God's going to like get rid of my kids, I hope. So, <laughs> um, so it's realizing in some ways, yes, there are bad things that are a part of our lives that like God wants to get rid of. Um, but then there's also times when it's more an issue of my heart, right? Like my heart is the issue. When I put my faith in something or someone other than God, it will shake. When you think about God's glory, and the glory just meaning that he's weighty and that he is bigger and weightier than anything else we come up against, when you put the weight of being God on anything or anyone else, it will shake. You will see that in your life. Um, But if we choose God, it's like building a house on a rock. It won't move. Um, if you've spoken to my husband, Matthew, at all in the last two weeks, he would have recommended to you a podcast called <laughs> This Cultural Moment. So I listened to it. Um, I only got one in. I support him in that. Um, sorry, so touching my pockets. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I love you, Matthew. Um, but it's actually really interesting. It has uh, two pastors essentially having a conversation about what it means to be a Christian in Western culture right now. And it's uh, John Mark Comer uh, from Bridgeton Church. And then he's speaking to Mark Sayers, who's already written a ton of books. And this is like kind of a specialty talking about being Christian in Western culture, culture right now. Um, and I won't ruin it for you. You should check it out. But the big um, the big point that he ends up making, and I was really struck by, is that as a society, we want to be comfortable. We want peace. We want right relationship with each other. But we want to do it in our own authority. We don't want to be under the authority of Jesus. And what he ends up, what um, Mark Sayers ends up saying is, we want the kingdom without the king. That's what we want. Um, and as I'm sure you know, this doesn't really work that way. Um, we live in a society where we can get really great $4 coffee, right? Because maybe someone living somewhere else is not getting paid a fair wage. There's borders keeping those people out. So where we're getting our $4 coffee might look really nice. Um, but it's not actually perfect. I can be drinking my $4 coffee and be really lonely, right? We're not actually experiencing the kingdom without the king. 
Um, and I was really challenged by that because I'd like to say that, the oh, that's just true of our society, right? Like, we would never be like that. Our church family would never be like that. But I know that's true of me sometimes, right? Sometimes I want the kingdom without the king. So I was really, uh, really convicted by that. We need to remember that our kingdoms, right, my kingdom is broken, um, right? And it can be broken personally with with whatever, anxiety, loneliness. It can be broken relationally when we're not connecting to other people that we love. Um, and it can be broken politically. I'm not going to give examples. I'm sure you can think of some. And uh, the truth is, at the end of the day, we need the kingdom with the king. If we get the king, we get the greater kingdom because he's the reason why it's so beautiful. Um I think it's really cool. What God's going to end up doing is he's going to take us back to the first kingdom, which was the garden, right? It was before sin entered the world, before anything was ruined. And uh, the word they used to explain it is shalom, which just means like peace and wholeness and nothing was broken. And um, that's what the writer of Hebrews is kind of pointing to, right? Like we're going to have joy and we're going to be in community with angels and the other people of faith before us and we're going to be in God's presence and see him as judge making things right and we're not going to be scared because we're going to be standing in Jesus's perfection and not ours. Revelation 21 says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Jesus doesn't just save us from the curse. He's going to undo it. And that's, that's good news for us. We are already citizens of the kingdom of God, even if it hasn't come completely yet. Because the truth is, God's kingdom is more real and it's like little hints and partial forms than the shakable things that we have right now. And I think about like, if you've ever felt the Holy Spirit enter the room, like, nothing else feels more real than that. Like, I don't know. I just, I don't think anything else can compare to when God is in the room being the king. So in light of that, verse 28, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let's be thankful. Um, I wanted you guys to have, like, a few application takeaways. I find that helpful for me. Um, so the first one, it will just really encourage you to take seriously your call to Jesus. Um, take some time to reflect, like, what areas of my life need the greater one? And what areas of my net life need to fall away? Um, whether that's being single, right, and doing it well, and, um, and being comfortable with that and knowing that Jesus was single, right, and he was perfect, and he can support you in that. Maybe it's being being in marriage and doing that well, and God being an example, the greater one, right, for your marriage and letting the ugly things in there fall away. It could be anything, anything in your life, school, job, kids, your thoughts. Uh, for me, it's rest, I was really struck by the message a few weeks ago on Jesus being the greater rest. And I think maybe it's just like a mom with little kids. I'm like running, 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 running all day. And I get to the end of the day and I'm like, 
grumpy. And I'm like, if I do not get to sit down and eat M&Ms and watch something on Netflix, I will have not rested today. And like, I'm really, you can ask Matthew, I get very grumpy at night. Um, so I felt convicted by that passage because I realized that I'm relying on Netflix and M&Ms to give me rest and not Jesus, which seems silly, but that's really what's happening. Um, so I've I found myself wanting that, right? Jesus is so much better than Netflix and M&Ms. You don't get a bellyache from Jesus, so there's that. Um, but I, more seriously, like, I can't rely on my own strength and entertainment and food to be that for me, right? And if I rely on Jesus, I get to access him at every moment of the day, right? I don't have to wait till the end of the day to rest. I can be in the middle of like wiping people's butts or doing whatever I'm doing and I can still rest in Jesus and know that like I'm worthy to him and I'm important and I'm not alone. Um, so I would just encourage you to think about where, where do you need him? Where do you need the greater one? What parts of your life need to fall away? I would also encourage you, God is so good that we don't have to be good at letting go of things, right? Like one of the things I've been praying is, God, help me enter your rest, right? Because I know I'm bad at it. So Jesus is so good that he helps me invite him in. I hope that makes sense. Um, I loved um, in the passage that Aaron did last week, they talk about like Jesus being the greater runner. And one of the verses is, um, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. And I just imagine like Jesus coming up and like kind of propping us up and like running for us and that's what we have right that's what we have in jesus um i'd also encourage you when we're a part of god's kingdom we're a part of something that lasts i think everybody that's spoken the series is like we don't know who the author is and um most of us unless we're super famous we are going to die one day and like three or four generations down is anyone going to remember me i don't know But what I love about the writer of Hebrews is we don't know his name, but we know about him, right? He took the time to be a part of God's kingdom and be a part of what God had to say to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And we are still talking about it 2,000 years later. And he's still encouraging the church and still pointing people to Jesus. Um, Yeah, so let's... Jesus isn't just one good option out of a lot. Let's take seriously his call to us. Um, I'd also encourage you that we are already already citizens of the kingdom. So our lives should already reflect it, even if it's not completely here. Um, And I think Jay's going to talk about this a little bit more next week, about what our lives can look like. Um, But I would just encourage you, if you're like, well, what would that look like, to check out Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. And if you feel like you're seeing those things in your life, that's awesome. But the Spirit is probably moving in you and doing good things. And if you say, like, I don't know, hmm, really lacking some self-control, once again, invite Jesus in, right? He gives good gifts. He loves to bless us. Invite him to do those things in your life. Um, And finally, I would just really encourage you, when I first read this passage, I was really struck that God doesn't want us to live in fear. Like, it was the first thing that hit me when I read this passage for the first time. Um, He doesn't want us to come at the mountain of fear. 
He wants us to live a, a life of hope and joy because of his son's blood. Um, so I just encourage you guys, like, let's keep praying against the spirit of fear. That's not our God. That's not Jesus. Um, in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, 9, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. It's hard to be faithful to Jesus sometimes, right? Life gets hard. We're around people who think we're insane, what, what have you. It's hard. There's no getting around that. And the writer of Hebrews knows that it's hard. But what he's saying is what we have is so great, it's so unshakable that we can stand in those moments. We can stand up and remain faithful to Jesus in hard times because we know the city is coming, it's already coming, and it's realer than anything we see right now. We know the hard things in our lives aren't going to last forever, but we know his kingdom will. We can come to the holy but holy God because of Jesus Christ, the greater one. So because of, a, because of that, verses 28 and 29, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you're so creative that you find a way to be exactly who you are, a holy, perfect God, and you find a way to bring us back to you, Lord, that you gave your son so that we could have you, Lord. Thank you that Jesus is better than anything else we will ever find, Lord. Would you increase our faith to believe that? Would you make our church family a glimpse of your kingdom, Lord? Not for our glory, but for yours. We ask, Jesus, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And would you use us to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.